Hear the word of God from 2 Kings 25, the last chapter of Kings. So on January 15th, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city and built siege ramps against its walls. Jerusalem was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah's reign. By July 18th, in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the famine in the city had become very severe, and the last of the food was entirely gone. Then a section of the city wall was broken down. Since the city was surrounded by the Babylonians, the soldiers waited for nightfall and escaped through the gate between the two walls behind the king's garden. Then they headed toward the Jordan Valley. But the Babylonian troops chased the king and overtook him on the plains of Jericho, for his men had all deserted him and scattered. They captured the king and took him to the king of Babylon, Ariblah, where they pronounced judgment upon Zedekiah. They made Zedekiah watch as they slaughtered his sons. Then they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him in bronze chains, and led him away to Babylon. On August 14th of that year, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard and an official of the Babylonian king, arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guard allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind to care for the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars in front of the Lord's temple, the bronze water carts, and the great bronze basin called the sea, and they carried all the bronze away to Babylon. They also took all the ash buckets, shovels, lamp snuffers, ladles, and all the other bronze articles used for making sacrifices at the temple. The captain of the guard also took the incense burners and basins and all the other articles made of pure gold or silver. The weight of the bronze from the two pillars, the sea, the water carts, was too great to be measured. These things had been made for the Lord's temple in the days of Solomon. Each of the pillars was 27 feet tall. The bronze capital on top of each pillar was seven and a half feet high and was decorated with a network of bronze pomegranates all the way around. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took with him as prisoners Zariah, the high priest, Zephaniah, the priest of the second rank, and the three chief gatekeepers. And from among the people still hiding in the city, he took an officer who had been in charge of the Judean army, five of the king's personal advisors, the army commander's chief secretary, who was in charge of recruitment, and 60 other citizens. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them all to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and there at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king of Babylon had them all put to death. So the people of Judah were sent into exile from their land. Then King Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, and grandson of Shaphan, as governor over the people he had left in Judah. When all the army commanders and their men learned that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah as governor, they went to see him in Mizpah. These included Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Sariah, son of Tenhumeth, and the Netophathite, Jezaniah, son of the Maacathite, and all their men. 
Gedaliah vowed to them that the Babylonian officials meant them no harm. Don't be afraid of them. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and all will go well for you, he promised. But in mid-autumn of that year, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and grandson of Elishama, who was a member of the royal family, went to Mizpah with ten men and killed Gedaliah. He also killed all the Judeans and Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people of Judah, from the least to the greatest, as well as army commanders, fled in panic to Egypt, for they were afraid of what the Babylonians would do to them. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, Evil Merodach ascended to the Babylonian throne. He was kind to Jehoiakim and released him from prison on April 2 of that year. He spoke kindly to Jehoiakim and gave him a higher place than all the other exiled kings in Babylon. He supplied Jehoiakim with new clothes to replace his prison garb and allowed him to dine in the king's presence for the rest of his life. So the king gave him a regular food allowance as long as he lived. This is the word of the Lord. So a confession. I had um, Tina read that whole chapter just because I wanted her to have all those names. Just, just to see how she would do with it. I'm just kidding, Tina. I didn't I did do that. Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning to worship with us. Doesn't the sanctuary look lovely, right? Yeah, thank you for those of you guys who helped decorate. We really appreciate it. Um, the effort and the time and heard there's some good cookie sharing and eating. But um, thank you so much for decorating the church. Guys, it looks lovely. I love this season. Am I right? How many of you guys love Advent Christmas season? Right? It's like my favorite. Every one of your hands should be up. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm judging all of you. I do. I love this season. It's my favorite. I love Christmas. It's such a good time. But I'm one of those guys, I'm pretty hardcore about this. I don't allow Christmas carols or Christmas music to start till after Thanksgiving. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Because we got to do justice to Thanksgiving. All right, we're not allowed to do all that stuff before Thanksgiving because there's no justice to Thanksgiving. All that to say, yesterday we bought a Christmas tree, put it up in our house, which by the way, Christmas trees have gotten expensive, right? I was like, what? How much? I almost bought a fake one. But they're like, no, it's my favorite tradition. So we put it, the boys, we play Christmas music on Alexa and, you know, having Christmas lights and all. It's so much fun. I love it. It's one of my favorite traditions to have during Christmas season. This is my, my favorite season. I love it. We call this season in, in our church, in the life of the church, the cal- calendar year of the church, we call this season Advent. Now, I know many of us come from different church backgrounds and different traditions. Some of us are perhaps familiar with participating in a church calendar or um, you know kind of Advent something you're used to doing. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about when we light a candle or do Advent. Like, We've never done this before. And with the purpose of doing this, the purpose of having a calendar or, or doing, celebrating a season at a time is because it orients ourselves to the true story. The story that God has been weaving from the beginning of creation. It, sometimes we think the story is all about us. That's our temptation. We think the story is all about you. You think the whole world revolves around you. But when we come together and we celebrate a season of Advent, we realize in the midst of all of our busyness, there's actually a greater story happening, and we get to be a part of it. You're living in a story, whether, you're not, whether you know it or not. It's a story that's either orienting you to what is true, good, and beautiful, or disorienting you from what is true, good, and beautiful. Advent serves as this corporate time for us to orient our hearts and our minds 
to that which we believe the Bible says is true, good, and beautiful. Pastor Danny said it, but I'm going to say it again. This is a good, simple definition of what is Advent. He shared this a long time ago. We use this every year. Advent is simply stating God promised he would come to bring salvation to his people. At just the right time, he came, and he is coming again to make all things right and new. That's what Advent is. Advent literally means arrival. And when we celebrate Advent, this is what we celebrate. This is a simple definition. Pastor Danny came to teach his kids at his old church. And this is why I want us to, to have the simple definition of what Advent is for us. God promised he would come to bring salvation to his people. At just the right time, he came. And he's coming again to make all things right and new. Here's my hope. Not just for this week, but over the course of the next several weeks. My hope is for you that you would grow in your knowledge of the story in your understanding of your place in the story, and your ability to participate in the story. I want you to know your place in the story and how to participate because Advent is knowing all about the story of the Bible, of a God of promise and of rescue, of hope, who came in the fullness of time and is coming again. So today we're starting our Advent series. We're finishing our series in the book of First and Second Kings at the same time. And I'm sure some of you may be thinking, how in the world is Lawrence going to preach an Advent sermon on the text that was just read, finishing up the Book of Kings? Most of you probably actually aren't thinking that. But for those of you that are, I love the challenge. Yes, I will preach an Advent sermon on the scripture that was just read. Okay, just saying. I know, it's hard, but this is what we're doing. Guys, if you remember when we started our first series, when we started this whole series in this books of Samuel and 1 Kings, we saw David ascended to the throne. The shepherd king, the, the, the boy who fought Goliath, he ascended to the throne. He's a mighty poet, warrior king. He establishes the city of Jerusalem and brings the ark in. His desire, more than anything else, is to have a permanent home for the presence of God. In other words, David's desire more than anything else is to always be with the presence of God. So he says, I can't live in a palace while the presence of God is in a tent. So I'm going to build a temple so God's presence is always with us. But God said, David, that's not for you to do. But instead of you building me a permanent house, I'm going to build you an eternal dynasty. An eternal throne that will last forever. You will reign forever through your offspring, through your children through your son, you establish my kingdom forever. So then we know how the story goes from there. David, just like Adam, just like Abraham, just like Moses, and the people in the wilderness, they, 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 they don't see the fruit of all their labors. As a matter of fact, you see it going worse. You see the kings that follow David, Solomon and so on, drift far, further and further away from God, make mistake after mistake, disobedient to God's law. We see them Worship and for the sake of, like last week I spoke about, for the sake of sensual physical pleasures of the body, for the sake of convenience, for the sake of fitting into the culture, for the sake of fear, they gave in to the worship of idols all around them. They're disobedient to God's law, so the kingdom divides. Jerusalem's kings are destroyed, and ultimately they're sent into exile into Babylon. So let's remember back what I've been saying for the past few times in my sermons, the father and son living in exile, sitting by the rivers of Babylon, weeping as they remember Zion, the presence of God with them. 
We said that this book isn't primarily historical, it's theological. So the questions that they're asking once again are, why are we in exile? Where is God? What is is he doing? Do we have hope? In our text this morning, we saw the fall of Jerusalem, exile of the people, but this random story at the end of King Jehoshaphat, I love that name, King Jehoshaphat being alive and treated well. And what an incredible story. God's people living in God's land, disobedient, and they have their city burned down. They're carried off into exile. But for some reason at the end, this king is alive. So here are my points this morning. It's a point that the prophets over and over again will remind us of later on. Is this. Sinfulness brings exile. Exile brings despair. And only hope in exile is the life of the king. I'll say that again. Sinfulness brings exile. Two, exile brings despair. And three, only hope in the exile is the life of the king. Number one, sinfulness brings exile. If you look back in verse six, it says they captured the king. They brought him up to the king of Babylon. They passed a sentence on him. They slaughtered his children so he wouldn't have any heirs. They bound him in chains and brought him to Babylon. Wait a minute, how can this be? I thought our hope was in a king coming from David about this awesome kingdom that will reign forever. We just read all his heirs are killed off. How is he ever going to reign and rule over us? How will he ever be the bringing the presence of God back to us? If we are in exile, the king is in exile, and his sons have been killed, how will we have hope? Israel's prophets over and over and over and over, I'm going to do it again, and over, warned God's people that sinfulness, rebellion, hard-heartedness would lead to exile and judgment. They give us message that our disobedience once again will lead us to be sent out of the presence of God, and we will lose the thing that's most valuable to us. Not the wealth, not the field, not the money, not the comfort, but the very presence of God himself. All throughout Jeremiah it says, my hope is gone and grief has fallen upon me. My heart is actually sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people. The whole land is crying. Is the Lord no longer in Zion? Has he forgotten us? Is there king not with her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their idols? Why have they worshipped anything else? As you think about Advent, the message of prophets is this. We are in exile because we've sinned against God. Exile is God's righteous judgment upon sin. Now, I keep using this word exile. It might be helpful for us to kind of have an idea of what exile really means. Simply put, in this case... Exile is a time when the Israelites were sent away from Jerusalem by force by the Babylonians. It was a time of mourning. Ultimately, it was sparked by the conquering of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But another definition of exile is the emotional understanding, kind of multifaceted way of looking at this word. And here's a good definition. I get this from Matt Chandler. And it says this, Exile is the experience of pain, suffering, that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs. Yet for the present, we can't go back there. This existential sense of deep loss as compounded by a sense of guilt or remorse stemming from the knowledge that the cause of exile is our sin. I'll leave that up there for a second longer as you can read over that again. It's the experience of pain, suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs. Yet for the present, we can't go back there. This existential sense of deep loss 
It's compounded by a sense of guilt or remorse stemming from the knowledge that the cause of exile is her own sin. And this is something, honestly, I don't have to tease out for a long time because you and I have felt this. Sin and exile is a subject all of us know far too much about, even if we don't have the words to put it. It's that deep longing and groaning within us. We know there's a home we were made for, and this isn't it. Because if this is our home, then why is there still so much pain, so much shame, so much sin, so much darkness? Certainly God's home is better than this. This can't be the presence of God. This must be exile. Not only does Israel find themselves in exile in 2 Kings 25, but the Bible describes our experience, the church's experience, you and me, as being one of exile. Guys, I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. I want you to agree with me on this. Is that one of the greatest dangers to our Christian life is believing that you're living in the kingdom fully now rather than living in exile. Does that make sense? One of the great dangers that we can look at is that we look at ourselves more like we're in Jerusalem at Zion all the time rather than looking at, no, we're actually in Babylon. Does that make sense? You and me, the church, we have more in common with Daniel and Babylon than we do with David and Jerusalem right now. We have more in common with Israel's exiles living under a foreign government, foreign rule, and foreign oppression than you do living under David's rule in Jerusalem. Guys, the Bible is trying to tell us that all of your pain, all of your suffering, all of your shame are actually symptoms of a far greater problem. You're in exile. You're in exile. Exile is this disease we're all suffering from, and its symptoms are shame, guilt, death. But the disease itself is exile, the lack of the presence of God. The thing that is just heartbreaking and gut-wrenching about this is that it's our own sin that has brought us here. So the prophets are reminding us and Israel that our sinfulness brings us to exile. Two, exile leads to despair. Can you imagine being carried into exile if you're an Israelite, you're in Jerusalem, by chains, being bound, leaving everything behind as you walk past the temple and you see it torn down, you see it collapsing, and you think, I'm back in exile. How long will this last? Will God ever come back? Will unfaithfulness last forever? My parents experienced a lot of ups and downs financially while I was growing up. I remember when we first moved to Florida, my parents worked so hard, they had multiple jobs to make ends meet and to hope for something better. They worked hard and saved, they worked so hard and saved, and was finally able to buy this little, this really tiny little Chinese takeout shop. It was a place where my dad worked his second job at nights cooking at. And so we got this place, and it started doing really well all of a sudden. My dad changed the menu, it started taking off, and after a couple of years, my parents thought, wow, let's, let's, let's. Let's stop renting and maybe we can build a house. So they built a house. They put all their hopes and dreams into this house. And it was a wonderful house. We loved it. It was an amazing time. Nicer than anything we've ever had before. And I spent my high school years in this house. Well, the shopping center where my parents had this restaurant was anchored by a Walmart and another grocery store. And so the Walmart and this grocery store decided to move to a nicer part of the town, you know, a new shopping center. But they didn't want any competition. Right? So they could afford two rents, so they actually kept the shopping center empty. They wouldn't let other businesses go in. And so they kept the two places empty, so all of a sudden the shopping center at my parents' restaurant went and completely crashed. 
until they lost all their business, um, and they ended up having to sell their house. So I remember one day, not long after, after this time, we were driving to visit my aunt, and they're still living in that same area. And I was with my parents, and we decided to visit, to see the old house. I was like, Mom, let's go drive by the old house, you know? So we went and drove down Boca Lagoon Drive. That's why I used to live, Boca Lagoon Drive. And then drove and pulled up to the house. And I didn't think I would get emotional. I wasn't. My mom was. My mom wept as she remembered the good memories that we had, but also what we lost in losing the home. I might have gotten teary-eyed, but I think it was more allergies. It wasn't, I didn't cry. That home meant a lot to my mom. It was a symbol of accomplishment. It was a time of joy. It was the idea that they provided for their children. It was her dream come true. It was more than, than losing a house for her. How much more so do you think Israel is lamenting the Lord's house? The actual manifest presence of God being destroyed in their midst, being taken down brick by brick, stone by stone. The house of the Lord was more than a place of worship. It was more than just where Israel experienced the presence of God. It was the actual dwelling place of God with his people. And his destruction represented exile. And they had no idea how long it would last. Exile is painful. It's painful for them. It's painful for us. And sometimes we don't even have words to put into it because it's all we've known. According to Harvard Health, with rare exceptions, life expectancy has been on the rise in the U.S. Uh, for, since the early 1900s, except for the past three years, actually, four years. Now, your first guess would be, well, duh, COVID. And you'd be right in some ways, but actually... The largest fall from life expectancy that occurred happened before COVID happened, actually. Overall, it fell from a high of 79 years to 75 years of life, life expectancy. Now, what is accounted according to this study is COVID, drug overdose, suicide, accidental injury accounted for more than two-thirds of this decline. So the increase comes primarily not from diseases like heart disease or cancer, but actually from preventable causes. Suicide and drug use. In other words, Americans are at an increasing rate believing life is painful, dark, and challenging, or so horrific, their exile is so bad. This is not a story, and this is not a study of sociology. I'm not even talking about psychology. I want to talk about theology here. This is what happens in exile. Our exile, it's been so long, we've forgotten we're in exile. It's so painful that we don't know what to do because we're so desperate for the presence of God, we don't even know it. Human beings don't even know it. Our exile is so painful that we try other ways of self-protection and self-medication that actually harms ourselves. Author Barry Jones, thinking about despair of exile, says this, we feel completely overwhelmed by the brokenness of our lives and of the world. Despair comes when our sense of control is lost and our attempts at escape leave us empty. So we give up to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. We lose the capacity to dream of a better future. This is what happens in exile. Whether you're acutely aware of your exile right now or you are in exile, whether exile is right in front of your face in every way, shape, or form through death and sickness, disease and sin and shame and guilt or whatever it is, no matter how close you can see it, it's absolutely there. We are in exile, and in exile, one of the easiest things to do 
is just start believing false stories. Start putting hope in other things than God and the gospel. That's what the author of Kings was so concerned about as they were gathered by the rivers of Babylon and they were teaching his children. His children said, remember his kids, remember my people. And this is what I want to scream, shout, convey with utter passion, with everything I have to all of you. Remember that as we're sitting by this river, as we're weeping, there's temptations to believe all the stories, all the lies, everything out there. But I want you to remember that our God is still God. He is sovereign. Our sin brought us into exile, but he is, has something in plan, something in store that's going to change everything. Amen. Everything. And for those of us who are living in this world right now, and we live in an exile, and we feel like there's something off, this world is hard, and it's broken, and I'm tired of reading about mass shootings, and I'm tired of hearing about all the pain and suffering and feeling it when I go to be with my family, it's so hard. And you know that there's something broken, something wrong with this world, and you're tempted, well, I can go to all these other ways to figure out how to cope with it. Let me tell you that the true way, the right way, is that this world is not meant for you as it is. You're meant for something greater. You're part of a better kingdom. Don't forget the king. Don't forget the king. In exile, the only hope you have for the, the exile is the king is alive. The king is alive. I guys, I'm one of those hardcore science fiction fantasy nerds. I'm just gonna admit this openly, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. I love Lord of the Rings. There's a YouTube channel called Nerd of the Rings and I'm a fan of it. I just am, just letting you know. But one of the hopes that the stewards of Gondor were supposed to convey, well, the hopes that the people had was that there is a high king. There is a king. Well, the hopes, if you look at Arthurian legend, is there was a once and future king, King Arthur, and he's coming again. There is a hope in mythology, there is a hope in religion, because this idea of longing for a champion king is deep-rooted in us. That's why if you look at so many of the the archetypes of heroes that we have looks like this. Because there's something inside of us that longs for the hero king. And as long as the king is alive, we have hope. And point three is the only hope in exile is the king is alive. But let's look back at verse 27. It says, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoashim, king of Judah, in the year of Awal Marduk, became king of Babylon, he released Jehoashim, king of Judah, from prison. Now this blows my mind. It's this random story out of the end of Kings. He's, he frees the king of Judah for no reason at all. And for no reason that he gives, he frees his king of a conquered nation. He had no need to. He had no, there, were, there was no pressure politically. There was no revolt happening. These people were utterly conquered. But for some reason, he frees his king. Not only frees this king, but he gives him new clothes. He, he gives him food. gives him allowance. lets him live a good life life. Guys, I want you to hear this. Don't miss it. God works in the exile. In seemingly some of the smallest, sometimes indiscernible ways, in ways we can't even see, but God is still working. Because I want you to get this. The second Kings isn't, I know it's not in the end of the Old Testament. It's actually still kind of in the middle of the Old Testament in your Bibles. But chronologically speaking, Second Kings is towards the end of the Old Testament era. 
Ezra and Nehemiah come after for sure at the end, but this is towards the end. And the text is trying to remind you, and the author of 2 Kings is trying to remind us, the prophets are trying to say that regardless of how long your exile has been, regardless of how much despair you have in your life right now, a king is alive. Remember, it's not a historical book, it's a theological book. And this theological book is telling you guys, there is hope because the king is alive and there is a truer king coming. No matter how hard your exile has been, no matter how long our exile will go, if the king is alive, our exile will come to an end. Even in exile, God's promises remain. The king is freed from prison. He's given a seat at the king's table. He's, his garments have been given for new garments. He receives an inheritance of daily needs. Our hope in exile is that the king is alive, even in exile. And exile will come to an end. So then the Old Testament comes to an end with these questions looming. Will God return to his people? Will the king reign from Jerusalem ever again? Will the son of Abraham ever come? Will the son of David come to establish his throne forever? Is God going to hold true to his promises? Or will our exile extend into an unforeseeable future just forever? Will life be this painful forever? Will we ever experience the presence of God again? And then the New Testament arrives on the scene, opens up, in an incredible way with this new beginnings, a new genesis, this genealogy of Jesus. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the one in whom God is placing all his hope, all his trust. Everything is put upon Jesus as the end of the exile. This is not a cute story about a baby being born on a silent night. This is God saying, my people will not be in exile forever. But I'm going to invade the kingdom of darkness. I'm going to invade Babylon with my presence. And I'm going to establish my kingdom. The means by which he does it is through his death on the cross. Where Jesus hangs and bears all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, and all our pain. All of our sufferings, he bears. He bears the, the fruit of our exile. And where the world sees a crucified criminal, the church sees a crucified king. Reigning as a Davidic Lord, as a Davidic Messiah, the one who is worthy of worship, honor, and praise. And he didn't stay dead. After three days, he's resurrected from the grave. And he established his kingdom as far north as from the south and east as from the west. His kingdom has no end. I love how Peter describes this. He writes to the church and he calls his people, the people he's writing to, he has this term that's one of my favorite terms of all time. He calls them elect exiles. Now, if I had a team of any sort, a band of any sort, or anything of any sort, I would name it elect exiles. I love that name. I don't have any of those things. We're now elect exiles. So we're still in Babylon. We're still here, but what we're here doing, guys, get this, is we're here part of another kingdom, so we're elect. We're still in Babylon. Babylon is still here. This is the world we live in, but we're not part of another kingdom. We get to live like, like agents. Guys, when I was younger, true story, you guys ever played MASH? Raise your hand if you know what MASH is. Come on. Not all of you know what MASH is, really? I felt like every kid did that as a kid, right? Mansion, apartment, shack, house. And then you'd be like, three girls you want to marry, or three guys you want to marry, and three jobs that you want. No? Come on. 
So everybody did this, right? And then you'd be like, you draw circles and you'd be like, stop. And you count and you'd be like, oh, you're going to marry so-and-so and you're going to have this job, right? Okay, some of you are like, oh, now I get it. That was called MASH. Um, every time that I did this, I'd always pick three jobs. They said, well, three jobs that you want to do, right? And there's always three jobs. I always, in my mind, this is how I thought as a younger person. First job was I always wanted to be a ninja. <laughs> but I was practical. I was practical. I said, what's the modern day equivalent to a ninja? So I said, I'll be a spy. That was my first choice. I'd be a spy, right? I don't know, that's a good choice. My second choice, my mom would say this. I don't know why she said this. But she's like, my, your, your aunt had a dream that you're going to be a pastor one day, so we're going to put that pastor. Even when I didn't follow, even when I didn't go to church, like, she still said that. So I was like, okay, I'll be a pastor. And then three, I always wanted to just make a lot of money. And in my time back in the day, I didn't know what making a lot of money looked like. My parents worked at a restaurant, and my dad would do some construction stuff. So I was like, what makes a lot of money? So watching TV, I thought, those lawyers make a lot of money. So I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a lawyer. Those are the three things I always wanted to be. I want to be a spy, a pastor, or a lawyer, right? I'm being dead serious about this. When I applied to colleges when I was in high school, those are actually the three professions that I thought about when I applied to colleges in high school. Because I thought, like, oh, if I went to West Point, I go to the military, I can become a spy. I thought that way. Then I thought, well, if I went to Duke for undergrad, I can you know, become a lawyer. And then I thought, I'll either go to a Christian private school or I'll go to a University of Florida where I got a full ride. It was cheaper to be a mid pastor. Those are my actually three. I actually thought this way. I'm weird. The funny thing is, and I laugh about this, but I ended up becoming a pastor. But in some ways, I get to be a spy. Here's what I mean. Part of my job as a pastor, part of our job as Christians is we're to live in another nation. Does this make sense? We're to live in another place. We're to live in a land that's not our own, ruled by a kingdom that's not our kingdom. We're part of a different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? So I get to come in here and be like, well, you know, I'm from there. You know, I get to be like, how do I change the culture here? How do I do like spy-like activity? Not espionage, but kind of espionage. You know what I'm saying? Do spy-like activity be like, you know what? I'm going to bring forth that kingdom's values, that kingdom's purposes, the ideals of justice and grace and mercy. I'm going to make that come into this kingdom. Do you see what I'm talking about? Spy-like. You know what else I get to do? I get to be kind of like a lawyer. Right? What's a lawyer supposed to be? He's supposed to be an advocate, right? Right? You get to argue for the sake of your cause, I get to kind of do that, right, as a pastor? I got I accomplished all my dreams, is all I'm trying to say. No, I'm just kidding. What I'm trying to say is this. What we have as the people of God, as elect exiles, is such an incredible calling. We have such an incredible calling. It's not just, oh, just do your thing, live and have fire insurance. It's you're, you're called to an amazing purpose. Spy type work, lawyer type work, whatever type work. You're called to kingdom work. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Revelation 19 says that all of us will one day be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will feast with Jesus forever. 
How much better is that than feasting with the kings of Babylon? The Bible also says in Isaiah 61 that one day our prison garments will be removed and we'll be clothed with the garments of salvation. He will cover us with robes of righteousness. We're not just going to have an inheritance that meets our daily needs. First Peter says we'll have an inheritance that has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The good news of Advent is that our king came and our king is coming. Your exile is not going to last forever. Whatever you're walking through in this season, and guys, we know the holidays can bring seasons of depression and guilt and shame and despair. Those are symptoms of the exile. And we'll pray for all those things to be remedied, but our greater prayer is ultimately, come, Lord Jesus, come. And end our exile. I told you my hope for Advent for you is that you would know this story, that you'd know your place in this story, that you'd grow in your participation in this story. So I want to think about our participation story for the next weeks. I love how N.T. Wright talks about stories. He says, tell someone to do something and you change their life for a day. Tell someone a story and you can change their life. Do you understand that the story that we're trying to speak and to tell here in this place, in this church, that is a story of the Bible? It's a true story of the world. Are you willing to put all your heart, your soul, and your mind, all your strength into be participating in it? Are you done playing with the false stories of the world and putting your hope into the things of this world? Advent is not a story that just needs, just meant to be seen. I don't want you to just see how other people experience Advent. I want you to be a part of this Advent story. So how do we participate in the story very practically in the next few weeks? Here's what I want you to do. There's two things, very simply. First, I want you to remember Ford. I want you to remember Ford. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be hit with a lot of songs and Christmas carols and a lot of times remembering the birth of Jesus. We're going to celebrate the baby. We'll hear the stories over and over again. On Christmas Eve, we're going to have the kids do They're going to sing a song, have scripture read. It's going to be cute. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to love every bit of it. But... But I want you to remember that the story for us is more about he's coming back. So we know he already came. In the fullness of time, he came. The story for us now is our hope is in now. That he came in the fullness of time. And he will come again. I want you to remember Ford. Secondly, I want you to pray expectantly. In an instant gratification world, delayed discipleship is often shunned, but that's what Advent is proclaiming. You've heard us talk about the already and the not yet, about the kingdom of God. There's certainly a tension there, but Advent is a season of the not yet. Advent is a season of waiting, of yearning, of longing, of expecting. Our only hope in exile is that King Jesus is alive and he's coming for us. If that's not true, we of all people should be pitied and full of despair. We're to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it is heaven. Guys, I liken this season of yearning to being pregnant. I was never pregnant, but my wife was pregnant. So I've experienced somewhat the joys of pregnancy with my wife. Somewhat, hear me. I'm not saying I know all about pregnancy. Somewhat the joys of pregnancy. But can I tell you that season of waiting was so precious. It was so precious. There was so much to get done. 
preparing the nursery, you know, reading a lot of books about, you know, babies and what to expect while expecting. I actually started, I started off what to expect before you're expecting. Then I read what to expect while expecting. Then I read the books about like baby wise, toddler. I, I read everything about baby stuff. It was crazy. But there is this time, this sweet period when your wife and your, or yourself, you're pregnant, and there's this sweet period where you're just waiting. And in this sweet period, oh, you know that the birth is going to be common, it's going to be great, but there's this sweet moment where God's doing something in you while you're waiting. I remember when we first told that we were going to adopt Hudson. And we got a picture of him in our email. And we saw that picture, and we're like, one day. We would say, we would look at each other and we'd say, one day you're coming home. One day you'll be in my arms. And this period of waiting and yearning was hard. It was difficult thinking every moment that he's not with us was breaking my heart. But God called us in the yearning to have such hope that that said to us, we knew with such confidence that one day, that joyous day, when we see him and he's going to come into my arms. Every year on Gotcha Day is when we actually met Hudson. We have a video that we watch and we read this book, our adoption story together with Hudson. And every single time we get to that moment when we see him and he comes into our arms, being allergies. And um, one day, one day, Jesus is coming. And all that is broken and all that is hard, all that is hurt, all that you've been through will have a purpose, will have an answer. All that is wrong, all that you mourn, all that you hurt, one day you'll be in the arms of a loving Jesus. And it'll all be made right. Till that day, we long for, we yearn, and we live in hope. This is Advent. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you promised you would come. In the fullness of time, you came, you lived a life of love and of purpose. You died upon the cross. You are the king who rescues, the king who sacrifices, the king who meets us in our exile and does everything needed for us to have intimacy and relationship with God. You took it upon the curse of the exile upon yourself as you died upon the cross but you do not stay dead. You are a king of the resurrection that has conquered death and sin. As long as our king is alive, we have hope. You are alive forever. We have eternal hope. Praise be to God. So now we say in the midst of this world, as we live as agents in it, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for you and we wait for you. We believe you're coming. You are our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.